0: Welcome to the Penguin Podcast.
1: Merry Christmas! We're back, as promised, for the second part of our Bumper Christmas Podcast. We are so excited, as I'm sure all of you are, about tomorrow. And whether or not you're madly rushing around getting everything ready at the 23rd hour, we think you should take a break. Put your feet up, help yourself to a mince pie, or a mini chocolate Yule Log, and relax listening to our Penguin Podcast.
2: To kick things off, something for the teenagers and uni students. Ben Masters, author of Noughties, and Joe Thomas, star from The Inbetweeners and Fresh Meat, reminisce about their uni days and interview each other about writing the book and recording the audiobook. Then we have an extract from a Charles Dickens classic. No, it's not a Christmas carol, as fitting as that would be on Christmas Eve, but another of his fantastic Christmas reads, The Chimes. And following this, the legendary Dick Francis' son, Felix, joins us to talk about his book Bloodline and how he's following in his father's writing footsteps. We then have a Christmassy cocktail recipe from Margot Henderson's You're All Invited. So if you're having a Christmas party tonight, we suggest you run out and get the ingredients because it's delicious. And finally, we're going to play a wonderful extract from a much-loved children's Christmas book. This year, The Snowman has been brought back to life in The Snowman and the Snow Dog, so it could be better than listening to Raymond Briggs' classic heartwarming tale. So first up, if there are any students out there pining for the SU, here's Ben Masters and Joe Thomas musing on their uni days.
3: So Ben, how far does your book, or how closely I should say, does it follow your actual experiences at university?
0: Um, There's like, there's base similarities, I'd say. It's kind of uh, similar, Elliot, my narrator, similar background to me. Uh, I went to Oxford, studied English. So I think most people read that far in the biography and the blurb and think, right, this is this is straight, straight yeah. biography. Yeah. But uh, in terms of like the experiences, I mean, there's like the more general stuff in terms of just the kind of the feeling and experiences of like nights out and being young. But I mean, it's quite yeah. like generic stuff. But in terms of like actual plot points, I'd say it's not very autobiographical at all, really.
3: Ah, oh, okay, right. That's quite interesting because um,
0: there's some quite sort of big,
3: resonant experiences that happen to to Elliot. But um, this is this is all figments
0: of you. I'd say your, yeah. I'd say anything major probably didn't happen to me. Yeah, like my yeah, <laughs> so my yeah. university life was well, pretty. Well, no, some of the stuff's quite it's
3: quite heavy stuff as yeah, well. I haven't had any actually. dreams about talking babies yet. Yeah,
0: but, no. Uh, yeah, but no, no, yeah. The the kind of the major stuff I'd say not so much because my uni life just wouldn't make a very
4: interesting.
0: Right. Interesting. <laughs> off, I don't
3: think. Well, and I mean and another another element of it is that there's a lot of literary references in it, and did, did that sort of just kind of just happen as you were writing it or was it something you sort of set out to
0: achieve i guess i just fi- i did an english degree and then figured out like well what do you do with that you may become yeah. a novelist it's that was like, a really terrible question a, as well just, sorry it no, <laughs> no, wasn't no. even really a question it was just like yeah no it's true like the the literary references are you know they're really important to the novel but it's kind of inevitable really when you write a novel set in, in an academic scenario uh it's obviously a big part of Eliot's life but it kind of it's the the challenge was finding a way of blending that in with the kind of the tight knit social life the repetitive social life, and how far the stuff that you're actually learning and you're reading, which takes up like a big part of your day. how much does that actually filter into everyday life and and the stuff you do with your friends so i just try I tried to come up with a voice that could incorporate all that stuff but hopefully in comic ways rather than just kind of like showboating. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I, I, I there was loads of moments where I hopefully saw some kind of humor from his inappropriate use of kind of highbrow literature to to meet his needs.
3: Uh, absolutely. I mean I'd say like it's it's really comic because he's got all this stuff kind of going around in his head. It almost just makes him even more aware of how much shit he's in because he can describe it so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so well but yeah, it doesn't yeah. really furnish him with
0: any particular solutions. Oh absolutely it's kind of the, the sense that he, he might think that this knowledge heightens his perceptions but actually in, in most situations it takes him even further away from the stuff he's actually describing and yes. usually when he goes off on one uh, on a literary kind of rampage he, he's getting more and more away from uh, what's actually true about what's going on around him, and he tends to be misreading people yeah. at the same time as misreading uh, the stuff he's been reading. Actually reading. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So you've been, you've very been very spotting well all cool. the references, right? Going, yeah, mo- most the of the them. Rep- yeah, no,
3: absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I know every single one. Yeah, good. Yeah, code, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, I, th- I mean, I, I think that, that's a really nice element of the of the book. The the liveliness of 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 student life isn't necessarily that you're doing a it to a certain extent your life is quite stationary you're making the same journeys every day you're spending also it's quite solitary you're spending a lot mm-hmm. of time on your own and I think it's really quite hard to describe what it is you're actually doing when you're a student I mean being a student myself I was aware that it was a very sort of pressurized time in my life but I couldn't quite explain why so I mean I think for me one of the things I really liked about this was that it shows that you're enormously busy but in a way that perhaps from the outside doesn't actually yeah. doesn't sort of come
0: across or at least that was that was sort of what i what it reminded me of oh thanks from, from uh, that's life. good to hear i mean uh definitely there was a sense of i think that at that age you have this feeling that everything that you're doing is in some way exceptional and ultra important <laughs> yeah. but really as you're saying they're quite it's quite a generic experience of of university uh and i think that uh i mean elliot's quite a narcissistic narrator and i really try to get that sense of him somehow thinking he's at the center of something special and really it's quite you know average experience but yeah um, but incredibly meaningful to the people to, to of, people at that age of course
3: yeah i mean absolutely there's a huge sort of emotional uh high points and and low points for him and also there's i mean there's a there's a really lovely sense of of what well, i suppose inherently of nostalgia because it, the, the book takes place on his last night of of university but there's there's a real sense of sort of longing and of, of sort of loss of this period of time yeah sort of sort of never coming back it's literally set on one night but in fact it's it's sort of set over mm-hmm. over 3 years what what sort of led you to that to that structure
0: well I think like the, the one night thing I mean it's such a, a rich tradition of kind of one day literature like uh, Mrs. Dalloway Virginia Woolf or Ulysses or something like that um, it, it's just a really useful device for giving you a strong unity to, to what you're doing so you've always got some some something to go away from and something to come back to but it's just again it's also I, I just really liked how far it might be ridiculous to try and fit in so, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. much memory and so much history into yeah. one night and yeah. I, I was really interested in pushing the realms of what might actually be feasible and completely. The unfeasible and I I just think that uh Elliot he's the kind of character who in the most inappropriate situations will start thinking of something that just d- really doesn't have much yeah. reference to <laughs> what's going on in front of him but again that's his kind of narcissism yeah
3: no it, and and it's interesting because I think it actually
0: it is it is completely believable because
3: you sometimes find that you've gone on some sort of journey through your memory but it's taken sort of five seconds yeah, but yeah it's kind of spans three years of your life like yeah, it's uh, Absolutely. it's um I I, I think it's uh it's very believable. Who, so which, which authors do you? Uh, this
0: is quite a simple question, but who, who are your favourite writers? Um, uh, Martin Amis is a is a big one. Okay, and certainly while while I was while I was uh, writing this, I was heavily under the spell. Right. Um, Anthony Burgess. Okay. Um, Angela Carter okay Saul Bellow I mean I yeah. start listing like, for ages and no ages, no yeah but, no uh, these are all they're all good they're all yeah. top notch <laughs> they're all good aren't they <laughs> your so well done guys and you'll each be getting a badge <laughs> uh, how are you finding reading it for the audiobook and what are the kind of the challenges of having to I mean it's almost like monologuing I suppose but you've got all these different characters that you've got to
3: yeah it, it's sort of quite heavily populated with characters of a similar age and um, I, I suppose one of the challenges is, is spacing them out although to be honest I, I'm not finding it too hard to read because there's there's such a sort of rhythm to it and actually you, you kind of just have to kind of ride the rhythm of it. But um, certainly with, with the uh, different voices, there are sort of some, some accents and uh, I'm trying to, I suppose, pick people from my life who are sort of broadly similar to these characters, which actually is, is, is not too hard to do. There, there are people who, sort of, who really sort of jump out at me, who I'm kind of basing uh, my version of these characters on. I mean, I suppose my my main emotion is just actually that I, I remember a lot of this myself. So actually, it's kind of a bit like going into unknown territory, but also it's really nice because I, I sort of I feel that I have a sense of recognition of these scenes, you know, of mm. that pub, that bar, that conversation, that room under that set of circumstances. Like it's uh, it's nice. So it, it's it's a nice mixture of sort of uncertainty, but but recognition at the same time. Do
0: you plan on speaking in a more drunk fashion as you go?
3: Yeah, I was yeah, we were saying that it might be quite nice if I played the naughtiest drinking game where I keep pace yeah. with the characters who drink. I mean, I would be Dead yeah people this. have challenged yeah. me to that they're like come yeah. on then well, let's see, let's it, see yeah. how good you are you write this novel <laughs> yeah. the, point, the thing is though
0: there's so many flashbacks that actually Elliot doesn't drink as much as I think readers think he does because no, most yeah. of the flashbacks he's getting yeah, drunk yeah well, that's so. the
3: thing yeah it's quite a sort of boo- it's a sort of quite a booze filled boo- but which actually is quite a- it's quite accurate I mean I think you sort of go from school where getting drunk is this sort of special occasion to university where it seems to somehow become sort of your job uh which is uh which is quite an interesting uh an interesting job were you to a heavy, have.
0: heavy drinking student uh
3: i was I, I don't know i was i suppose i was a, I, I drank more regularly than i would have expected to i think i often found that you were so sort of wound up by the time you'd finished the end of your day sometimes the easiest thing to do was just to um Crack open a cold crack one. Crack open a cold one on and your own it in, on in your, your room. room. Just on your own in your room. Yeah. I mean, no, it's um, it's uh it is um definitely I think, you know, students probably kind of use alcohol to kind of help them help them kind of get along. And I suppose that's just kind of so <laughs> so, so socially wide. So I mean, it's it's uh it's kind of the beginning of your uh, the, the, the sort of the adult's relationship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, uh, yeah.
0: One thing I wanted to ask you, yeah. um, I mean, I wrote the novel in a kind of, com- in some ways, a conversational voice, but also yeah. there are moments, and this is again, this is part of kind of Elliot's lit crit background, where he gets carried away with the sound of his own voice, and it all gets a little bit, yeah, uh, well, unrealistic to how you you were talking day to day life. And I was just wondering how that differs to when you're playing like a character on TV, where obviously you're you're, you're just speaking natural vocabulary rather than what's yeah. necessarily going on inside your head.
3: Well, I mean, I think it, it's really it's really nice change to be honest. That you you often have not very much to play with when you're you know when you're an actor in a tv show it, you're a very small cog in a machine whereas with this somewhat terrifyingly i'm literally doing all of it so that has its own set of challenges but it's funny it doesn't it seems quite natural having what i what i suppose you'd call like a, a an inner monologue style vocabulary but that that's kind of like my line as do know as an i guess an actor of this of this script but um to be honest, it's really, really nice to sort of be in control of the whole of the whole narrative. Yeah. So now I'm just saying that what I like about this is that it's just you on, yeah, you yeah, on yeah, your yeah, own yeah. in a dark yeah,
0: room. So yeah, so that's yeah, that's where I'm happiest. Are you are you going to do female voices for the female character?
3: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I am, I am doing female voices. I mean, <laughs> I don't know whether I could do it on a sort of long term basis, but um, it is um, something that. I think yeah, I mean, it, it seems quite natural to do the voices, to be honest. But um, I don't know. I think I, I hope that actually it's better that it's me doing a female voice than if, like, if than if we had like other actors kind of just coming in at the right time when it's the line for them and then coming back to me yeah. saying said Lucy. I think it's a slightly different genre of like yeah.
0: of, of of reading it like this it's, it's, it's true to the novel as well I think because obviously in any first person narration the characters only exist in so far as they come from that narrator so yeah. I mean all the characters are kind of garbled through Elliot's imagination and there is always yes. a question about how, how fairly he's representing them or being true to, to, to what they're really like
3: absolutely well, I mean particularly because the, the, there's, there's sections that he's actually just remembering or the characters remembering so that's obviously in the mind but then actually the narrator himself as you say it is ultimately it's his voice so mm-hmm. that's kind of my big get out clause <laughs> yeah. if, if the accents aren't it's my, my... get out clause as yeah author,
0: right? <laughs> yeah it's uh it's really handy and can I, can I ask you what uh what stuff you read for
3: what do i read yeah i um i at the moment am reading god what am i reading i've actually i've got into kingsley amos quite a lot recently yeah. um I say there's, there's a few it. references in here. Yeah, there are. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I've, I mean, I actually don't know Martin Amis um, quite so well, but I know Lucky Jim does get a mention in here, yeah. which I which I really really like. And uh, what, what else have I? What else have I read? Um, I am reading a book at the moment by Russell Hoban, who uh, wrote a book called The Lion of. Boas Yashin and Yashin Boas, which is quite <laughs> Russell Hoban's quite a quite a particular
5: uh, I was say, <laughs> so some of his books
0: would be quite hard to do the audiobook. Yeah, no, absolutely. Really well yeah, he's uh, he,
3: Yeah, he's written one called Ridley Walker, which is like all in this kind of like post apocalyptic slang, which yeah. I don't really know how you do. And I'm actually too honest, I'm also reading um I'm reading Pickwick Papers, which I I don't know whether you've heard of Charles Dickens, but um <laughs> he's uh I think he, right he might be all right. Yeah, yeah. he's. Um, okay. But no, I, to be honest, I am. Um, so you got three books on the go.
0: That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's not yeah. the best way to read. No, it's not. No, things
3: <laughs> I keep on stopping and and to be honest, what's what's I think really sad is actually because of going to university has sort of ruined reading for me a little bit because. Once I'd covered enough of a book to kind of cover my own arse in a supervision, I wouldn't bother to finish it because actually my time would be better spent... Drinking. Drinking, (laughs) exactly. Ending that work. Exactly, so that's why I now don't read at all, because I realise that logically one's time is better spent drinking.
2: That was Ben Masters and Joe Thomas talking about Naughties, which is out now. Next we have an extract from The Chimes by Charles Dickens, read by Geoffrey Palmer.
4: There are not many people, and as it is desirable that a storyteller and a story reader should establish a mutual understanding as soon as possible, I beg it to be noticed that I can find this observation neither to young people nor to little people, but extend it to all conditions of people, little and big, young and old, yet growing up or already growing down again. There are not, I say, many people who would care to sleep in a church." I don't mean at sermon time in warm weather, when the thing has actually been done once or twice, but in the night and alone. A great multitude of persons will be violently astonished, I know, by this position in the broad, bold day, but it applies to night. It must be argued by night. And I will undertake to maintain it successfully on any gusty winter's night appointed for the purpose, with any one opponent chosen from the rest "'who will meet me singly in an old churchyard "'before an old church door, "'and will previously empower me to lock him in, "'if needful to his satisfaction, until morning. "'For the night wind has a dismal trick "'of wandering round and round a building of that sort, "'and moaning as it goes, "'and of trying with its unseen hand the windows and the doors, "'and seeking out some crevices by which to enter. "'And when it has got in, as one not finding what it seeks, whatever that may be, it wails and howls to issue forth again, and not content with stalking through the aisles and gliding round and round the pillars and tempting the deep organ, soars up to the roof and strives to rend the rafters, then flings itself despairingly upon the stones below and passes, muttering into the vaults. Anon it comes up stealthily and creeps along the walls, seeming to read in whispers the inscriptions sacred to the dead. At some of these it breaks out, shrilly as with laughter, and at others moans and cries as if it were lamenting. It has a ghostly sound, too, lingering within the altar, where it seems to chant in its wild way of wrong and murder done, and false gods worshipped in defiance of the tables of the law, which look so fair and smooth, but are so flawed and broken. (sighs) Heaven preserve us, sitting snugly round the fire. It has an awful voice, that wind at midnight, singing in a church. But high up in the steeple, there the foul blast roars and whistles. High up in the steeple where it is free to come and go through many an airy arch and loophole, and to twist and twine itself about the giddy stair, and twirl the groaning weathercock, and make the very tower shake and shiver. High up in the steeple where the belfry is, and iron rails are ragged with rust, and sheets of lead and copper, shriveled by the changing weather, crackle and heave beneath the unaccustomed tread, and birds stuff shabby nests into corners of old oaken joists and beams, and dust grows old and grey, and speckled spiders, indolent and fat with long security, swing idly to and fro in the vibration of the bells, and never loose their hold upon their thread-spun castles in the air, or climb up, sailor-like in quick alarm, or drop upon the ground and ply a score of nimble legs to save a life. High up in the steeple of an old church, far above the light and murmur of the town, and far below the flying clouds that shadow it, is the wild and dreary place at night. And high up in the steeple of an old church, dwelt the chimes i tell of they were old chimes trust me centuries ago these bells had been baptized by bishops so many centuries ago that the register of their baptism was lost long long before the memory of man and no one knew their names they had had their godfathers and godmothers these bells for my own part by the way i would rather incur the responsibility of being godfather to a bell than a boy and had had their silver mugs, no doubt besides, but time had mowed down their sponsors, and Henry VIII had melted down their mugs, and they now hung, nameless and mugless, in the church tower. Not speechless, though, far from it. They had clear, loud, lusty-sounding voices had these bells, and far and wide they might be heard upon the wind. Much too sturdy chimes were they to be dependent on the pleasure of the wind, moreover, for fighting gallantly against it when it took an adverse whim, they would pour their cheerful notes into a listening ear right royally, and bent on being heard on stormy nights by some poor mother watching a sick child, or some lone wife whose husband was at sea, they had been sometimes known to beat a blustering Nor'wester. Aye, all to fits, as Toby Veck said. For though they chose to call him Trotty Vick, his name was Toby, and nobody could make it anything else either, except Tobias, without a special act of Parliament, he having been as lawfully christened in his day as the Bells had been in theirs, though with not quite so much of solemnity or public rejoicing. For my part, I confess myself of Toby Vec's belief, for I am sure he had opportunities enough of forming a correct one, and whatever Toby Veck said i say and i take my stand by toby Veck, although he did stand all day long and weary work it was just outside the church door in fact he was a ticket porter toby Veck, and waited there for jobs and a breezy goose-skinned blue-nosed red-eyed stony toed tooth chattering place it was to wait in in the winter time as toby Vec well knew the wind came tearing round the corner especially the east wind, as if it had sallied forth, express from the confines of the earth, to have a blow at Toby. And oftentimes it seemed to come upon him sooner than it had expected, for bouncing round the corner and passing Toby, it would suddenly wheel round again, as if it cried, Why, here he is! Incontinently, his little white apron would be caught up over his head like a naughty boy's garments and his feeble little cane would be seen to wrestle and struggle unavailingly in his hand, and his legs would undergo tremendous agitation, and Toby himself, all aslant and facing now in this direction, now in that, would be so banged and buffeted and tousled and worried and hustled and lifted off his feet as to render it a state of things but one degree removed from a positive miracle, that he wasn't carried up bodily into the air as a colony of frogs or snails or other portable creatures sometimes are, and rain down again to the great astonishment of the natives on some strange corner of the world where ticket porters are unknown. But windy weather, in spite of its using him so roughly, was, after all, a sort of holiday for Toby, that's the fact. He didn't seem to wait so long for a sixpence in the wind as at other times, for the having to fight with that boisterous element took off his attention and quite freshened him up when he was getting hungry and low-spirited. A hard frost, too, or a fall of snow was an event. And it seemed to do him good, somehow or other. It would have been hard to say in what respect, though, Toby. So wind and frost and snow, and perhaps a good stiff storm of hail, were Toby Vex's red-letter days. Wet weather was the worst. The cold, damp, clammy wet that wrapped him up like a moist greatcoat. The only kind of greatcoat Toby owned, or could have added to his comfort by dispensing with wet days when the rain came slowly, thickly, obstinately down, when the street's throat, like his own, was choked with mist, when smoking umbrellas passed and repassed, spinning round and round like so many teetotums as they knocked against each other on the crowded footway, throwing off a little whirlpool of uncomfortable sprinklings, when gutters brawled and water spouts were full and noisy, when the wet from the projecting stones and ledges of the church fell, dripped, "'Drip, drip on Toby, making the wisp of straw "'on which he stood mere mud in no time. "'Those were the days that tried him. "'Then, indeed, you might see Toby looking anxiously out "'from his shelter in an angle of the church wall, "'such a meagre shelter that in summertime "'it never cast a shadow thicker than a good-sized walking-stick "'upon the sunny pavement, with a disconsolate and lengthened face. "'But coming out a minute afterwards,' warm himself by exercise and trotting up and down some dozen times. He would brighten even then and go back more brightly to his niche.
2: That was an extract from Charles Dickens' The Chimes. Now something for the dads. Felix Francis, son of Dick Francis, joins us to talk about collaborating with his father and keeping the Francis books going. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Today we've got Felix Francis in, who's going to be telling us all about his latest book, Bloodline. So Felix, first off, could you just give us a little introduction, tell us a bit about it?
5: Indeed. Uh, Bloodline is, um, is set, of course, in the world of horse racing, like all the Dick Francis books are. Not that you need to know anything about horse racing. My main character is a race course commentator. And the book starts with him commentating on a race at Lingfield Park, in which his twin sister is riding. And uh, his twin sister, Claire, doesn't win the race when Mark thinks she should have done And not only that, he feels she didn't win it on purpose. So they have a bit of an argument that night, and Claire drives off in a huff, and two and a half hours later she jumps to her death from the balcony of a London hotel, and Mark is devastated by her death, overcome with grief and guilt, that he had something to do with it and he drove her to it. And he sets out to find out why she killed herself, or indeed if she did kill herself, and um, blackmail and murder tag along for the ride.
2: Wow. I mean, these are such strong themes that reoccur in, in the novels of Dick Francis, your father. Um, what what made you take up take up his writing
5: well it was almost by accident my father and mother used to work together on the books and they produced a book every year for the last 39 years of the uh, 20th century so i grew up in a fiction factory and i learnt you might say i learnt my craft from uh, reading my father's work, discussing it, especially with my mother, who was a great believer in the rhythm of sentence. And, and, uh, but my parents, when my father got to 80, he retired, and my mother, sadly, died just a month after they'd made the decision to retire. And so that was the end of the books. And four years later, my father's literary agent came to see me, and he said, look, Felix, we've got a problem. And that is that no one is reading these these books anymore. Thirty nine wonderful stories, because they're not being stocked in the bookshops. And what we need is a new frontless book, a new a new hardcover to stimulate some interest in the back. And I said, well, you know, I'm afraid uh, you're not going to get one. Dad is now 84, and Mum's no longer around to assist with the, um, you know, the sentences and the and the rhythm and so on. And uh, the agent said, well, I've got someone in mind who might write one, and it would be a Dick Francis novel by so-and-so. And And I said, well, before you ask anyone else, I would like to have a go. Now, I've never written a book before in my life, and I was a a physics teacher by training. So to Andrew's, uh, my agent's, eternal credit, he didn't roll his eyes and say, don't be ridiculous, why do you think a physics teacher can write? He just said, well, you better go and write a couple of chapters so I wrote a couple of chapters sent them to him he got quite excited he said I better write a bit more and I wrote five chapters and we went to the publishers and the publishers got excited so I went to my father and uh, he got quite excited and the upshot of it was that Under Orders came out as a Dick Francis novel the following September and it was originally just to stimulate backlist interest and to get the bookshops to stock the backlist. But suddenly, the, the new book took off, you know, it was number two in London and number three in New York. And there was talk of another book, even a two book contract. And the publishers, especially those in America, took a bit of fright and said, it's got to have your name on it. So it became out as a Dick Francis and Felix Francis. And And then they've really taken off. And and, uh, I'm glad to say that the backlist are now selling again and they're being republished in a different format, which is great news. And Bloodline is officially my second solo effort. And indeed, it's very odd for the last couple of years not to have my father around to read and sort them out. But it's actually my seventh. So, (laughs) um, and I'm working half, well, I wouldn't say halfway through, but I'm a... I'm about a fifth of the way through the eighth.
2: Wow, fantastic. And do you feel with the publication of your second novel that you've acquired your own distinctive literary voice?
5: Well, a lot of people said to me, why do you write Dick Francis novels? Why don't you write Felix Francis novels? And why are you copying your father's style? Well, I don't really copy his style. It is my style. It's what I learnt from growing up reading them. But I do feel in a way they are different. They are, I think, less formal. I like to think there's a little more humor in them. But they are essentially the same type of books. I think, you know, readers who pick up a book, whether it is a Dick Francis with a Dick Francis name or whether it's a Dick Francis novel with, by me, they know what they're, they get. They get uh, first-person narrative. They get uh, a book which is a good mystery at least I hope so, and they get one where courage and loyalty are the basis for the, the character and, and the way in which he behaves. But I hope that there is a, a bit of doubt and, and, a, and, and various high jumps and open ditches on the way for the reader.
2: And how important is it that your father's name continues to appear on future publications?
5: Well, Dick Francis, a Dick Francis novel is now more a brand than an individual. I mean, to me, growing up, Dick Francis was always Mary Francis and Richard Francis come together. I'm immensely proud of what he did. And by continuing the legacy, I in no way want to diminish my huge admiration of what he did before me. Those books, though, felt very much part of me. Um, As I said, I was a young boy when the first one was published, but I wrote my first part of a Dick Francis novel when I was a 17-year-old physics student, and I designed the bomb that blew up an aeroplane in Rat Race. I also wrote the computer programme and quite a lot of the physics bit in Twice Shy. Uh, I wrote uh, all the meteorological bit in Second Wind. I helped my parents with the completion of Shattered because the book was very well named. And when I went to collect the book to bring it back to Penguin um, for publication, it hadn't been finished. And my parents were well shattered by the experience. So I feel that my current books are as much a part of him as the early books were a part of me I mean, I do have the Dick Francis police, let me tell you. Not only my editor, but my, and the rest of the family, who are standing by and will let me know in no uncertain terms if I write a book which is not up to his standard. So um, it's important to me. I mean, people say to me uh, that, that you should just forget the Dick Francis' name. In fact, um, one my, my Czech publisher said, it's now time to dump your father um, I don't think it is yet, but um, and I enjoy announcing to people and writing on the bottom of my emails that I'm the author of the Dick Francis books. Uh, it was it's the greatest honour to be able to say that.
2: I think it's really great that it's such a such a family thing. And do you feel that it's as much a part of your sons' lives as it was of yours?
5: Well, I have two boys. Uh, Matthew and William. Matthew is a lawyer, lives in Australia, and William is an Apache helicopter pilot for the British Army. And I, I don't know what whether they feel they've got a, an enthusiasm for creative writing. They certainly read the books. Indeed, William read um, Bloodline in a single morning, which I was really, I mean, part of me thinks, oh, God, you know it took me a year to research and write this book and here's someone reading it in one (laughs) day and you think, this isn't fair but on the other hand, of course, every author wants people to read it in one sitting you know, books that are unputdownable are what we're all striving for. Whether either of the boys will move on to continue the legacy after my days, uh, I don't know I'd love them to but I feel so lucky that lightning struck twice, you know, in two generations. And if it struck a third time, it would not, no one would be more pleased. <laughs>
2: yeah. And um, I know that you've mentioned previously that the strict regime and focus of writing a novel isn't, isn't something that came naturally to you. Do you think that's changed as you're about, to, you know, well, as you've just published your second complete novel?
5: Well, I think that it's, um, it's hard work. And, you, and it is, involves a lot of self-discipline. I mean, if you're a schoolmaster, your discipline is dictated to you by the school bell. There is no school bell in my office, and I have to be pretty disciplined to try and write 1,000 words a day. Um, you know, if the book is 100,000 words long, then people think, well, if you write 1,000 words a day, then you can write a whole book in 100 days. But it doesn't actually work like that. You have to do the research, and you have to do the thinking time. Which takes a lot, and also you have to do the promotion of the last one. So, writing a novel, I find, it is very complicated, and I try and make the books fairly complicated because I think that's what my readers want you know, to give them a, a degree of intelligence and so on that you hope they have, and, and make the book as complicated as is sensible without making it over complicated.
2: And do you think um do you think you'll ever be able to publish as many books as Dick Francis did?
5: Well, I don't because uh, it takes me a year. But my father started when he was well the first book was published when he was 41 and he went on until he was 80, so that was 39 books. In my case, uh the first one was published when I was um 53 and now here I am six years later with the seventh book out and I'm coming up 60 and I think if I try to add one a year and try to do another 32, I may, I may be well past my sell-by date by then. Uh, I intend to go on writing them as long as I can and as long as people want to read them and more importantly, perhaps, as long as the publisher wants to publish them.
2: Well, that was great. Thank you so much for coming in, Felix, and telling us all about your new book, Bloodline, which is out now. Now, if you're hosting a Christmas party tonight or fancy a change from mulled wine, we have The Perfect Christmas Cocktail by Margot Henderson, which is read by her editor, Julia and Anne.
6: Here's Margot Henderson's ideas for Christmas from You're All Invited, Margot's Recipes for Entertaining. How to have a better Christmas. And you can't do a better Christmas than drink. Gin. Gin. Beautiful Gin. The gorgeous sound of early evening ice clinking against the glass as it swims in Tanqueray. Best drunk before dinner on any evening, but ice cold. There are lots of delicious gins to choose from, but a good staple is Tanqueray. And remember, when life throws you lemons, cut them up and make gin and tonic. For a party, make jugs of Negroni. Here are the measurements. Six shots of gin. Six shots of Puntimez. Six shots of Campari, ice and slices of fresh orange. Make this cocktail in jugs. Mix the gin, Punti mes and Campari together with a stirrer and pour over ice into an old-fashioned glass or club goblet. Garnish with a slice of orange. Wait for a few moments and then listen for the Negroni roar once the room has consumed a jug or two. If you want to make something more sophisticated, there's the gin martini. In the words of Fergus Henderson, I'll have a gin martini with a twist, painfully cold and painfully dry. The barman at Dukes serve a brilliant martini with a little wiggle of their bottom. Don't forget the rule, never more than two, otherwise you will be a goner. As with all drinks, I prefer somebody else to make them for me. They always taste much better. A martini is one of those drinks that everyone has their own special way of doing. It's best to keep all the ingredients in the fridge so they're good and cold. The glasses should be icy cold from the freezer. It's all about cold and dry and heady deliciousness. Lemon peel or olives is a personal choice. You should have a bag of ice, three shots of icy cold Tanqueray gin or Russian standard vodka for a vodka martini, a quarter of a shot of Noi Prat or other dry vermouth, lemons, olives, and brine. Dip your martini glasses in water so they're slightly damp, but no more. Then put the glasses in the freezer for one to two hours before you want to make the martini. In a glass jug or cocktail shaker, swirl a good amount of ice around until it's good and cold. Pour the gin or vodka over the ice and stir. Pour the vermouth over the gin or vodka. Discard the ice pour the cold gin or vodka into the glass, twist the lemon peel, brush the edges of the glass and slip the lemon twist into the alcohol or add an olive. Serve immediately. We've
2: listed the ingredients on our blog page, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk, for you to try for yourself. And if you're planning on entertaining family or friends in the new year, Margot Henderson's You're All Invited is available now. And finally, we have an extract from Raymond Briggs' wonderful Christmas classic, The Snowman, read by Andrew Sachs.
4: When the grandfather clock struck twelve, James suddenly woke up. He went to the window and looked out at his snowman. He looked very lonely. James put on his dressing gown and tiptoed down the stairs. James opened the front door without a sound. When he stared out into the moonlit garden, he could hardly believe his eyes. The snowman moved. He took off his hat politely and bowed. And then he started to walk towards the house. James shook his hand. Oh, w- w- would you like to come in? he asked. The snowman nodded.
1: Truly magical. Thanks for that, Danny. And on a final note, we want to give you a heads up about how you can get your hands on some of our most popular ebooks at 70% off. All online retailers are running a price promotion now until the 14th of January on our bestsellers including Dickens a Life by Claire Tomlin, David Williams's Camp David, The Mystery of Mercy Close by Marin Keyes and Neil Young's autobiography, Waging Heavy Peace. So it might be the perfect last minute gift for you to give to one of your loved ones. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast for this year. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back in 2013 with more author interviews, recordings and extracts for you to enjoy. If you'd like to find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, please visit the website at penguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, we'd really like to hear them. You can email us at podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or if you'd rather tweet us, we're at penguinpodcast. Have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.
5: You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.